Welcome to a special edition of the BioCentury This Week podcast. I'm Jeff Cranmer, executive editor of BioCentury. And today we're coming to you from BioCentury's 23rd Bioequity Europe Conference in Dublin, Ireland. Joining me today are Jeremy Skillington, the CEO of infectious disease company Poolbeg Pharma, and Danny Bach, a partner at ND Capital, and my colleague and frequent BioCentury this week, guest and co-host Stephen Hansen. Today we'll be discussing the Irish biotech ecosystem and the environment for deals and venture capital in Europe, as well as some highlights from day one of the Bioequity Europe conference, which BioCentury is putting on with EBD Group. But first, BioCentury this week is sponsored by Jado Capital, a leading global private equity company with a patient benefit-driven approach that finances and accelerates the development and growth of groundbreaking medical innovation. The Paraspace VC empowers and supports managers through its expert, integrated, multi-talented team and investment of significant capital to ensure the growth of companies, building market leaders in their respective therapeutic areas with accelerated patients' access globally, especially in Europe and the U.S., JATO has over 500 million euros under management, a rapidly growing portfolio of investments, and a presence in Europe and the U.S. Jeremy, Danny, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be on. Thanks, Jeff. Jeremy, as you have the home field advantage, I'd like to turn to you first, perhaps. I'd love to hear how the Irish biotech ecosystem has evolved in recent years. One thing I'm particularly curious about as you were the head of BD for Inflazome, the Irish biotech that was acquired in 2020 by Roche, in what is something of a signature deal for the Irish biotech ecosystem in recent years, whether that deal has helped give the local sector a bit of a lift. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's a really good question. Yes. Yeah, so a little backstory on Inflazome, and maybe I'll talk a little bit of history as well, but Inflazone founded in 2016. It originated from a collaboration between two academics, one here, Trinity College Dublin, Professor Luke O'Neill, along with Professor Matt Cooper at the University of Queensland in Australia. So on the one hand, it shows how uh, biotech, biopharma can be global. Uh, but the, head, the company was headquartered here. One of the uh, original investors, Fountain Healthcare Partners, based here in Dublin, along with Novartis Venture Fund, uh, came through with uh, 15 million of Series A funding. And uh, so that took us to uh, Leeds kind of candidate status, uh, you know, pre-IND ready, and, uh, you know, filing a lot of intellectual property. And then in 2018, uh, just two, two short years later, we raised 40 million from both Fountain and Novartis followed. But then interestingly, we got Forbian based in uh, the Netherlands, along with Longitude based in the, the United States. So from that standpoint, again, you know, science is global and so is investing. So, you know, we had a, a small team. We did establish an office in Cambridge, getting access to very knowledgeable and experienced ex-pharma drug developers. And, uh, you know, we kind of built forward from there. We had clinical data. My role in BD was essentially to, you know, talk to every pharma company in existence and tell them about Inflazome and give them updates on the progress we were making. And there was genuine interest in the target, which was NLRP3 Inflamasome. And, uh, you know, the progress we were making. So, you know, we came down, we had several, uh, at the end, uh, term sheets on the table. Uh, we had uh, multiple discussions with many farmers. And in the, in the end, Roche won out. 
And I think, uh, you know, they acquired the company in September 2020. Um, a side story was, you know, the last uh, six months or so were in discussions, negotiations during COVID. So there was a lot of Zoom calls uh, going on instead of the usual face-to-face, but it, it was accomplished. And and Roche essentially, you know, wanted to take the two assets. One was for for more brain diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, because it was a brain, brain penetrant compound. And one then was something more on the cardiovascular side. So it was easier for Roche to buy the company and take those two drugs forward for development. So uh, again, very great success for the company, but but you're right, a great success for number one, Irish investors in Fountain Healthcare Partners, and then number two, for the Irish biotech ecosystem. Again, intellectual property that you know originated at least partly in Trinity College Dublin. So I think people see, you know, the can see, can be. When people see it can be done, they get energized and uh, you'll see that, hang on, you know, I've got some intellectual property, you know, some academics are doing some really interesting work. That's published in uh, top tier journals, so it does give the impetus to, to begin company formation. So I think you're right. I think it's uh, you know that was a nice kind of bellwether, and and you do see you know more companies you know popping up in in the interim. There's always been a you know let's say you know biotech companies being formed. Maybe you know some progress, some required, some don't succeed, and uh, you know that's standard for the industry. But the hope is that there are many more of the infrasome like companies uh, coming down the track. Now, tell us a bit more about how the ecosystem has evolved in recent years. My understanding is that if you're in Irish biotech, you sort of either worked at Alan or or you didn't. There's these sort of two (laughs) groups that really influence the sector. Can you speak quickly a little bit to that? Yes, I can. I mean, Elan is a, is a terrific story in that, you know, even taking a step back, I mean, Ireland, I think it's is a 14 of the top 15 pharma companies in the world have a presence in Ireland. Now, the majority of that presence is around CMC, it's around manufacturing. They kind of come here, they build you know, factories, manufacture the various uh, medicinal products and export them. And, you know, it's fair to say that Ireland have a favorable tax structure for exporting drugs, and that's why a lot of them come. So I think Elan could be fairly described as one of the, you know, the, the first kind of indigenous biofarmers, more especially pharma, but they built it from the ground up, starting off in formulation and then kind of building out and acquiring companies and you know, becoming global, you know, having offices all over the world. And then the company itself was kind of acquired later on you know, through uh, you know, various hoops. But the diaspora, you know, the, the, the people that were trained and gained the experience at Elan you know, now had knowledge and expertise of an industry that... Uh, they could spin out companies, they could form new companies, they could fund new companies. So there was certainly kind of a lot of appetite to kind of continue the Elan story. And a lot of these farmers, maybe not as large, you know, I do think we're, we're kind of on the smaller scale of biofarmers where it's, it's the lean and mean insofar as, you know, you can do the virtual biotech model, you know, recruiting, bringing in you know, external manufacturing, you know, external consultants, et cetera. But there has been you know, other companies pop up in the interim uh, many of which here are, are kind of presenting today at uh, you know at, at BioCentury and tomorrow, and some of these indeed are you know academic spinouts. But I think the most recent success to comment on is Amrit Pharma, who again formed in 2015, I believe, and uh, you know built a company through acquisition and were recently acquired by uh, by Chiesi in Italy for uh, 1.4 billion. So there are some of these unicorns, you know that that come and go, but. There's a nice, I think, bubbling up now of, of newer companies coming through. There's Vizari uh, who are spinning out of, uh, of Trinity College Dublin, Atsa spinning out of uh, you know, University College Dublin, a few of these kind of coming through. So it, it's, it's a great time to be. And as I said, maybe the Influzome is kind of inspiring, you know, the Influzome story to uh, some of these risk takers, entrepreneurs, that uh, this is a route that, that we could and should take. So I, th- I think uh, 
the environment is good and it's growing. And I do have to you know, give a hat tip to some, you know, the government organizations like Enterprise Ireland and Science Foundation Ireland who, who fund this kind of originating work. And then, of course, the venture capitalists like Fountain Healthcare and Sorobo can come in to, uh, to fund a later stage when the, when the true, uh, you know, say, you know, millions of dollars are required, uh, millions of euros to push the companies forward. So it's a nice ecosystem. And uh, I think uh, it's primed to grow in the future. Excellent. Thanks for that. Uh, hey, I'd like to bring Danny into the conversation now. Danny, we've talked a bit in the past about Europe's biotech hubs. How do you see Ireland fitting into this picture? And tell us a bit about the other hubs in Europe today. So uh, Ireland is progressing extremely, extremely well, thanks to all these collective efforts uh, that uh, Jeremy just mentioned. I just heard on the Century Podcast edition last week that it was the third uh, largest exporter of drugs in Europe. But of course, there are other European hubs that are behaving very, very well. UK is in the mind of everyone, particularly the Golden Triangle, Cambridge, Oxford, London, Switzerland as well, the density of innovation, pharma talent, CMC talent, biotech is extreme uh, in Switzerland. And then very close to this first tier, you would find the uh, Netherlands and Belgium. And Copenhagen is a very interesting hub as well, gathering a lot of the innovation done in, in the entire Scandinavia. And, and then there are the two giants, uh, Germany and France, which of course they have a big volume of uh, biotech financing, etc. But I don't know if I would call them hubs in the sense that the innovation there is much scattered around the territory. So for an investor like us, it's much more difficult to focus on on one or two cities to find the innovation on those countries, whereas in a, in a country like Belgium, uh, it's all very, very concentrated, right? So, um, so yeah, I would say this would be the three tiers I would mention, like uh, main hubs in, in Europe. Well, I'd like to turn now to a topic that's, of course, top of mind for all biotechs as this bear market grinds on, and that's money and raising it. Jeremy, Poolbag uh, is one of the companies that decided to go public on AIM. Can you tell us a little bit about that thought process? Yes. Uh, in, interesting backstory. I, I kind of wound on my activities at, uh, at Inflazome and uh, very shortly afterwards uh, was contacted by the chairman of Poolbag Pharma, uh, Cahill Friel. And Cahill had, uh, he was also chairman of a company based in London, HVivo, who were a public company listed on AIM. And they run a viral, human viral challenge studies, so clinical trials uh, testing uh, viral vaccines or viral therapeutics. And he explained that uh, he was going to spin a company, Poolbeck Pharma, out of, uh, of HVivo. Uh, lots of questions asked at the, uh, you know, the conference here is kind of where the name came from. It's actually an area of Dublin called Poolbeck. So uh, there's a couple of uh, large uh, towers, uh, decommissioned uh, power generation uh, towers you know, present here. But So it's an area of Dublin. So his thinking was to spin out Poolbeck to focus on the biotech aspects of, uh, of infectious diseases. And it was a natural, I guess, progression to stay on AIM, you know, because you had uh, investors who, uh, who had invested in HVivo who know the company. So we technically demerged. So the investors in HVivo did get shares in Poolbeck as we you know, broke the company off. So it was uh, another step then, obviously, to list separately on uh, on the uh, the AIM market in London. So we did have uh, you know institutional investors come in. We had a lot of you know high net worth uh, retail investors came in. We raised twenty five million uh, back in twenty twenty one. So we're twenty two min. 20, it was July twenty twenty one. So we're uh, twenty two months, almost uh, two years in. 
the business model is an interesting one in that we see that as the only funding we need. Uh, it's not your traditional biotech. You will go series A, series B, series C to, you know, as they progress in the clinic. Our ultimate goal and business model is to generate early human data and then partner. So we know that pharma, you know, are interested in partnering uh, programs to fill their pipelines, you know, that have human data. And indeed, uh, David Evans from the uh, uh, the Roche Venture Fund was on a panel earlier today here at Bioequity mentioning that you know their sweet spot is proof of concept clinical data, which again, music to my ears in the uh, in the pool bed context. So yeah, so we took that, and again, as I say, from the deal work we do, we will do the transactions, where we believe that we'll be a self-funding, self-sustaining company, and no need to go back to the market. So obviously, the corollary is that share price will grow as we uh, as we grow and build value in the company. So you know, a different approach, uh, a little unusual, but I think at that time, uh, it was the right thing to do given our investor base. But I think we we were fortunate in that the window. The investment window was still slightly ajar, so we were able to get in there before everything kind of got very, very quiet. So, you know, as I say, we're we're capitalized. We have you know a very long runway. We're uh, we're comfortable from a cash position, and and obviously supplementing with uh, with deals is the uh, is the company strategy. So uh, yes, I mean an, an interesting and alternative approach, but uh, something I'd do again. Interesting. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, you know, I did want to ask you as well. I, you probably saw it last night at the. Um... Opening ceremony for the Biocody conference, there was a data presentation from our colleague uh, Simone Fishburne that highlighted the fact that looking at the past five years, LSE listed UK companies had actually, and I guess in my mind, sort of surprisingly, um, actually performed better than other UK companies that had listed on NASDAQ. What was your read of that uh, of that data point? Yeah, I mean, that was an interesting comment. Again, it was a good reception last night. I will say from an Irish perspective, it was wonderful to, to welcome an international cohort of colleagues you know, to Dublin and enjoy Trinity College. That that too surprised me. And, you know, I was thinking after the fact why that is. I do think, obviously, part of it is a numbers game. I think the, you know, the ecosystem or the, you know, in, you know, for life sciences in, in the UK in particular is obviously much smaller than uh, you know that and you know listed on Nasdaq you know you the hubs of Boston Cambridge and the Bay Area San Diego etc but I do think maybe you know in my, in my mind and I'm I'm not saying I'm right but maybe there was an over exuberance in investments in the in the states you know there was uh, money was available lots of projects lots of companies being founded maybe the quality wasn't there whereas in the UK it's a bit more selective because I don't think they're you know maybe they're they're more risk averse in their investments maybe there's a more of a diversity of investments but I do think that that was a surprising, you know, because, you know, less to be clear, the you know the the life science sector, you know, in the UK is hurting as well. You know, share prices are are, are kind of down and flat. I heard one good expression last week uh, when I was um, actually you know, when I was at uh, BioTrinity that good news, you know, actually keeps the share price stable. In the past, you know, good news, you know, brought the share price up, but now they're just in these very difficult and challenging times and. Uh, you know, as I say, you know, bad news does what bad news does. But uh, but I do think, you know, it's an interesting t- statistic. So it could be a numbers play, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, they're just uh, not as many companies as there were. And, uh, you know, they're kind of executing on maybe a, a more kind of focused approach. But uh, yes, I mean, we're all waiting, though. I should kind of come. We're all waiting for, you know, the tide to turn. I think it's kind of, you know, almost two years in and they keep reminding us these are cycles. They're always cycles. And in a cycle, it will turn, but you know, hopefully, it'll uh, you know the confidence will will get back in the sector very soon. Yeah, and I think that there must be a kind of, um, if I may, uh, Steve, a cautionary tale in that story as well. 
probably if you compare the LSE overall with the Nasdaq overall, the difference wouldn't be so striking. But when you look at European companies going to, to Nasdaq, many of them do not get the same attention from American investors that American companies do. Many reasons for that. Management teams may not be so experienced or simply there will be less comfort to America, for American investors to invest in European companies, particularly at the early stage. So probably the lesson there is that it's not because um, there is much more money in NASDAQ that European companies going to NASDAQ are going to perform better, right? They should be very well equipped and very well set up to catch the attention of American investors in the same way that an American company would do. And in some occasions, they may be better off staying in, in a European market, depending on how they are. Yeah, sure, sure. And, you know, I, I wanted to sort of jump off on, on what Jeremy said about cycles as well, because that came up in, in a panel, uh, the investor panel that I was moderating this morning around um, where we were talking about valuations. And several of the investors on that panel were making the comments that in their discussions these days, there are still some CEOs, some companies that basically are acting as if it's still 2020, where they're still looking for, you know, 50%, 100% upticks in valuation, you know, when they're looking at B rounds or C rounds. And so we'd love to get your reaction to that, Danny, and, and what you're seeing on the ground in terms of how companies are thinking about valuations in the broader context of where we are today. Yeah, happy to comment on that. And actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the, the expression from my friend and, and colleague, Daniela Couto from Biogeneration Ventures. We were together in a panel a few weeks ago, and she, she used this image of the, the camel shape in funding phenotypes. And, and this is what we are seeing in many, many companies in Europe, right? So you have those that, despite having relatively solid and good science, they have a lot of difficulties to raise money. And for them, the flat is going to be the new normal. Or many of them are taking down round valuations. And then you have the in the other extreme, those companies that are gathering massive valuations with a lot of investors around and raising much more money than they initially thought. And, and I believe, paradoxically, that this is coming out of fear. Fear and, and it's a rational fear, right? So in front of bad times, these companies and their management teams and their investors want to gather as much money as possible to, to navigate through the difficult times, which is a, is, a, is a good thing to do. And many investors that very often uh, we operate under a herd behavior, if I may say, but even more so in those difficult times, right? And many investors say, wow, I'm not, seeing, I'm not sure about investing alone in a, in a very bold technology, very innovative technology, but I may be more comfortable investing in big syndicates in a company that has a lot of money around the table. Many other investors checking the boxes and validating the thing and, and I go there. And as a result of that, you have a bulk of companies struggling for money and a few uh, a few ones getting massive, massive amounts of money even beyond uh, their wildest expectations and nothing in between, right? So the classical 20% uplift, series A to series B to series C, that is a regular thing you see. You see less and less of those, actually. Interesting stuff there, Danny. Tomorrow, we'll have more discussion of valuations at the Capital Markets Showcase that will be chaired by Erica Whitaker of UCB Ventures. In the Capital Markets Showcase, getting real about valuations in the new normal. I think that kind of gets at what you, Stephen, and, and Danny were saying. Well, we're just about out of time. I'd like to just 
give you each a chance to to give a parting thought, Jeremy. Yeah. Listen, we were delighted. We are delighted to host Bioequity here in Europe. Hopefully, we uh, will do some more in the uh, in the future. I think it shines a spotlight on on Irish biotech. I think here, as I mentioned earlier, um, the the industry there's eight is a 80,000 people employed in life sciences in Ireland, but again, majority in the manufacturing side of uh, the industry. But we're hoping, you know, come five years time that uh, you know that'll swing more into the R and D company building entrepreneurs, you know, having real biotech companies here in Ireland. Uh, that can uh, replicate the Infozone story. And Danny, quick word. Yeah, totally. I would, I would, uh, I totally agree with uh, with Jeremy. And let's uh, hope that this extends to the to the broader Europe. But I would take with me the the thought that was discussed yesterday on the opening uh, ceremony and the opening debate with uh, Simon Fishburne and other investors about the pressure on healthcare costs and how these are going to shape our industry in the years to come. And how important it's going to be for us investors to invest in innovation that takes this into account, right? And this can be things even beyond drug development in the convergence with other disciplines that can deliver better medicines for less cost. Well, thank you, Jeremy, Danny, and Stephen for slipping away from the conference to spend a little time with us on the BioCentury This Week podcast. And in addition to the Capital Markets Showcase panel that I mentioned earlier, among Tuesday's events, there's also the Women Investor Networking Breakfast that's hosted by Level 20 and BioCentury. We'll also have BioEquity's inaugural academic poster session that's hosted by BioCentury's Distillery Dashboard and Future Leaders of European Investment. There'll also be the handoff ceremony to our 2024 regional host. You'll hear a bit more about that on tomorrow's podcast. And if you're looking for more information about events to check out on Tuesday, go to the Bioequity Partnering One platform. Hendel Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. <laughs>